1: Afternoon. this is Frida Liu. E-commerce seems like yesterday's conversation. Everyone is online and selling the wares through numerous platforms and sales channels. But there are a few sectors where the digital world has only made a limited impact. And with us today is a man famous for his limited impact, Matt Armitage. And before I continue, Matt, it's been a while since we've done
0: this. You know, I just want to say that you can run, but you can't hide. Well, no, and you're actually looking at me on video at the moment, which I try right. and avoid for these things. So I'm, I'm managing. <laughs> (laughs) not to hide double time so but it's really it's really lovely to speak to you again to do this
1: right so we're talking about this right and are you one of those people with a late night shopping habit
0: I mean I really did I mean I've tried to curtail it I did a lot of online shopping back in 2020, the first year of the pandemic, late at night, like an awful lot of people. Um, and I've got a wardrobe rail full of massive midnight mistakes uh, as a result of uh, these habits. And of course, the shopping apps don't help either. You know, they'll recommend all these weird and bizarre cheap things that look like really alluring at bedtime. So, you know, you're hot, your thumb is hovering over these things and it's bought it before your brain has time to actually yell. No, don't do it. You know, we talked about doom scrolling back then, but we should have had doom shopping as well because that's really what it felt like. So since then, you know, I've pretty much put a ban on myself. It's browse, but don't buy after about 9pm and leave it in the shopping cart and see if you even remember next morning, much less, you know, decide that you want to complete that book.
1: Right. So 9pm, the witching hour. So is it a coincidence that your first show with me in years is about shopping?
0: I know it seems absolutely awful, doesn't it? So no, um, it is just a coincidence. I'm not trying to push anyone into insulting stereotypes. This is actually to do with my trip back to UK a few weeks ago. And it's also to do with some of the structural changes that we're starting to see in the retail sector. So I was chatting, to a friend about cars yes that is a stereotype (laughs) boys talking about cars but at least it's a stereotype about myself so that's okay so we were talking about leasing cars which isn't big in malaysia yet but it is huge in the uk so most of my friends lease their cars rather than own them. And my friend was telling me that his car lease came up. It expired during uh, one of the first lockdowns in the UK. So the company called him up, the finance company, and said, you know, this is what we can give you. These are the new cars that you can lease. And of course, he said, what we all do, you know, can I test drive before I actually commit to it? He was told, because of the lockdown restrictions, that he couldn't test drive that these cars that he was being offered over the phone were basically take it or leave it. Did he leave it? Of course. I mean, who signs a three-year financing deal on a car they haven't seen And until that phone call had probably never even thought about, you know, owning or driving. So he bought himself an old Land Rover instead. And to be honest, my trip to UK was full of people who had bought or were thinking of buying an old Land Rover yeah. instead of something. Yeah. Um, you know, admittedly, most of them live in the countryside. So I guess that's another stereotype. And while I understand that my friend didn't want to commit to an unseen vehicle that a finance company had pre-selected on his behalf. The truth is that people are increasingly buying these big ticket items, cars even homes mm. online. Wow. Uh, some car companies are even exclusively selling online. And that's really what I wanted to talk about today. Those ch- those changing attitudes to how we buy goods, especially, as I said, those big ticket items and how those attitudes are reshaping the in-store experience as a result of this new purchasing behaviour.
1: Now, is this a trend that's being driven, pun intended, by companies like Tesla? The idea of bypassing traditional third-party dealerships and going direct To the consumer?
0: Well, I think in part, yeah. I mean, I think the car industry was probably heading in that direction Mm. with, you know, an emphasis under the words eventually. And the pandemic accelerated that online buying trend as it did in, you know, pretty much every retail sector. So, from a consumer standpoint, while car dealerships are generally convenient, you know, you can head down to the lot. You can try out a bunch of cars. You can decide what you want. They aren't necessarily that great for the consumer because there has to be that room for both the manufacturer and the dealer to both make money. Now, I'm not going to go into the ways that car dealers make money, how they split the revenues, how the upselling works. You can listen in to a, a real car expert, someone like Daniel Fernandez on BFM's Cruise Control, if you want more info on that kind of subject. But going back to Tesla, the company actually pulled all its physical dealerships back in uh, 2019, I think, and moved completely to online sales that year. Now, it still maintains a network of showrooms and service centres, but when you buy a car from Tesla, you buy it online.
1: Right. Was this a simple, you know, cost efficiency measure on Tesla's part?
0: Well, Tesla was already different in that most of its dealerships, certainly in the US, were run by the company itself. And that was something that put them... uh, uh, in conflict with some of the the kind of myriad state and local laws around the U.S., which have been put in place to protect independent car dealers, uh, and those laws make it difficult for the auto manufacturers to build their own consolidated retail net. So the dealer lobby argues that it's better for consumers because it means you've always got a local face for the brand. So there's always someone local to go to for information about the product if you have any problems. So while Tesla did save some money with reorganisation, its model was already different from the the longer-standing car companies like Ford and GM. And I think it was already building to order rather than the traditional model of holding inventory.
1: Right. And you mentioned the pandemic accelerating the trend to buy online.
0: Yeah. So a lot of car companies made it easier to book a car or start that purchasing process online during the pandemic. Some of the newer car companies, uh, the startups like the electric car makers Rivian, They've always been direct to consumer. That's been their model from the start. Traditional companies like Volvo and Volkswagen started to sell to consumers directly during the the pandemic. I mean, of course, the car dealerships, the showrooms were closed. And of course, people still needed new cars. And those car makers needed to keep their production lines going. It's not just about profits. It's also about employing people, keeping people in jobs. So people still needed those vehicles and i'll be honest yeah. you know i i don't know how the companies like vw and volvo structured those online purchases whether they included the local dealerships or whether you know it would just excluded them completely but even as we go back to normal the car industry or at least parts of it seem to have learned those pandemic lessons. Uh, And I think this is a story that came out uh, at the start of June, but has been updated and clarified in the weeks since. And that's the announcement that Ford in the US is going to sell its electric vehicles direct to consumers. It's going to use a similar model to Tesla. It's going to use fixed prices and therefore identifiable margins for the brand. And plus, it gives them a lot more control over their supply chain. They don't have to overproduce because they don't have that issue of inventory that they have to ship out to dealers which may sit idle for weeks or months.
1: Right. And what are we likely to see more companies follow Ford's move?
0: Well, it seems that one of the motivating forces behind Ford's move is the profit margin that Tesla gets on its cars, uh, something around 15,000. Per car, I think the Ford CEO is quoted as saying. And let's not forget that despite the fact that it makes millions of cars more than Tesla every year, Tesla is worth multiples mm. of Ford's value in terms of that, that market value. So this isn't just about current business practices. It isn't just about quarterly earnings calls. This is really about the future of Ford's business. And Ford's business, like most car manufacturers, is going to be electric because whether we like it or not, electric vehicles are the future of the auto industry, simply because countries are starting to legislate against traditional combustion engines, and some countries are aiming to phase out petrol and diesel-powered vehicles as soon as the end of this decade.
1: Right. You know, and have we reached that point where electric vehicles are up to the task of replacing those combustion engines?
0: Well, increasingly, you know, especially given that um, electric vehicles in general are quite a new trend so yes the the history of electric vehicles actually stretches back to the dawn of motoring. But in practical terms, we're looking at the last sort of 20 to 30 years. Uh, I know this is a, a false equivalence because the world is so changed, the environment is so different. But at a comparable point in the combustion engine's history after, you know, sort of 30 or 40 years, we'd only reached the Ford Model T. Now electric vehicles have a range of several hundred kilometers. We've reported on technologies on the show that could cut charging times to under 10 minutes. We're all also starting to see the emergence of electric delivery vans and lorries so for that that long distance shipping component as well what we still really need is some kind of ready for market breakthrough in battery technology something that will make the technology lighter more efficient and faster to charge but even given the existing technologies and the developments surrounding them we can start confidently planning that electric future but at the same time Ford's dealer network is essentially a legacy of that first stage Mm. of motoring, which is the Model T.
1: Right. And, And let's go back to that question about what we should expect from Ford and
0: other companies. Well, it seems as though they're trying to play both sides for the time being. They're committed to that legacy dealer system and that commitment is often enshrined as I said, in those national or state laws. So, I think one of the things we will see, first of all, is some serious coordinated lobbying by automakers to change the laws that prevent them selling direct. Now, that's going to be interesting because it's going to uh, have them directly opposing the lobbying groups that represent their own dealers. So, you know, we don't know what's going to happen there. Uh, Ford has already separated its electric vehicle division from the combustion manufacturing side of the, the business. So they're effectively different companies. And I think we'll see a lot of manufacturers following suit. And they will maintain those existing dealer networks for petrol and diesel vehicles, until such time as those vehicles are are basically phased out
1: right and how is it likely to impact you know the consumers
0: well ford ceo uh used the model of uh, target the big box retail store in the us um, Mm -hmm. and he mentioned the competition that they faced from online retailers like amazon now he points out that target hasn't disappeared you can still go to physical target stores But you also have the option of buying from Target online and having your purchases delivered Uh, in response as well. Those physical stores are changing. They're morphing. They're offering more in terms of hybrid experiences and hybrid experiences is something that I want to talk more about after the break. But just going back to the the cars, though, uh, customer satisfaction in terms of that online buying experience, it is mixed. But broadly, consumers seem to be in favour of the trend. People like the fixed prices. Uh, I think we've all had that experience of buying a car and not really thinking we got a great deal, yes. or thinking that we got an yeah, or thinking that we got an okay deal, but that somebody else was being offered a much better <laughs> one. I think that's the thing that annoys us the most. So. Fixed prices help with that. Then there are factors like the car being delivered to you at your home or your office. Right. Um, some of these manufacturers will even let you return the car within a week or two for a full refund if you're unhappy, um, which, you know, we have that with everything else we buy. But when we buy a car, you know, you, buy it, you can't give it back. Uh, some companies like Tesla and Rivian, I think, will actually send a technician out to do minor repairs at your home. So you don't have to take the car anywhere. But on the negative side, some buyers have noticed that there tend to be fewer service centers. uh, So that makes servicing a lot more arduous. You know, you have to take long trips to get to a service center. Or if uh, there are issues, the online or email support staff simply don't Mm. respond to you very quickly. Because with a local dealer, you always have that option of, going there and getting in someone's face. So it's definitely a mixed experience from the uh, consumer perspective. But as I said, we'll get into uh, more of those ways that the consumer experience is changing when we come back after the break.
1: Right. So after this, Matt Amatich moving into the fast lane of hybrid retail, BFM 89.9.
0: Beyond Frivolous Matters, BFM. 89.9, The Business Station.
1: you're listening to bfm 89.9 it's matt's plane you know before this you know we we're looking at a landmark change uh by ford to move the sales of some of their vehicles online and we touched on the idea of hybrid retail experiences
0: yeah so this is where we start to move away from cars and into mm. the broader retail sector so there are massive size of relief <laughs> from anyone who isn't into cars and has stayed with us uh, this long um One of the things that Ford has asserted is that it will work with its existing dealers to manage this transition. But in Ford's media statement, the CEO made clear that the company standards were going to be, in his words, brutal. And that tells you a lot about the current consumer experience when buying cars. The principal only has limited control over your experience at the showroom because they're all run by independent companies. And that's a really weird anomaly in this world of global brand experience.
1: Right. Well, in terms of the uniformity and unity of that custom experience?
0: Well, yeah, you know, you go into a Starbucks or a McDonald's or a, a Sephora or an Apple store anywhere in the world. And your experience is going to be broadly similar. You know, there may be minor regional quirks, but your brand experience will essentially be uniform, not just in terms of the decor, the products, or the staff uniforms, but also those those psychological cues as Mm. well. The things that we don't always notice, The, the lighting, for example, the music that's being played, the smell, maybe even the temperature of the stores. So those micro cues that tell you that you're somewhere familiar, and that this is a place that you can trust. Now, given that for most people, cars are the most expensive financial commitment we make other than our homes, especially in Malaysia, that lack of uniformity of experience from dealer to dealer is pretty remarkable. You know, why do we have more trust, for example, in the quality of a hamburger than we do in the quality of a car? You would expect the reverse to be the case. You know, from my own uh, admittedly anecdotal experience, there's much more uniformity and control exercised by brand owners within the luxury car sector. Mm. So it's not as though it's absent from automotive retail, but it doesn't explain that huge experiential gap between a Ferrari and flame grilled beef. So
1: in effect, uh, this is about rationalization and maintaining that brand identity
0: experience? I think those are factors for sure. You know, it's also about achieving Tesla-like margins. It's about pushing the market cap at the company. But it also reflects the way we shop. Most of the stores we go to outside of grocery stores are single brand experiences. Um, For example, you know, there are a few of the traditional multi-brand stuff Sports shops around, but most, yeah. mostly we tend to go to the Nike store or Adidas or Puma. And often the stores that do sell multiple brands, uh, for example, Foot Locker or JD Sports, they tend to be specialists. So they sell limited editions or they have runs from the brands that are exclusive to their chain. So they seem to be adding value to the brand rather than subtracting. And the same goes with a lot of the multi-brand beauty stores. I mean, I mentioned Sephora, Mm. for example. And with those, it's often about the items that are exclusive to the chain.
1: So is it fair to say that we're seeing those barriers start to blur and less separation between brands' digital and physical identities?
0: Yeah. I mean, increasingly in physical stores, you find notices that push you online that might be to download an app it might be for an extended range of the clothes uh, special offers or even for a, a wider variety of sizes and color you know larger sizes is an issue for me so as as much of the uh, the just you know the idea of free returns on online clothing is a draw sometimes you just want to feel the fabric you just want to try something on and of course you want to see whether that color you see on your screen and the mm. actual color of the, the garment right Inside, uh, in that sense, the physical store becomes much more like a showroom than a retail store. It's mm. a place that you go to try and then let you complete your purchase online. You know-
1: It it might sound to some people like a massive duplication of effort.
0: Yeah, partly because we're not looking behind the the curtain or the fitting room, as it were. You know, I I mentioned that example of wider sizes and colours. I mean, we don't think about the logistics that take place to, say, keep a a clothing store in operation, the stock that they have to keep on hand, the sizes, the, the size of those physical stores, just to showcase all of the products, and, of course, that storage space for all of the items that aren't on the racks. One of the the biggest cost savers that an organization, a company like Amazon has, is those warehouses, those distribution Mm. centers, these giant spaces that allow the company to send most of the items from one single location direct to the consumer. So what looks like duplication from a consumer perspective may actually be consolidation and streamlining from the brand's position. Okay,
1: does that mean it's becoming less important where we actually buy the product as long, you know, as we do buy it?
0: Yeah, so this is where even with um, their own emergent e-commerce channels, markets like automotive are way behind most retailers. You know, the thinking is now much more about unified experience platforms that allow the consumer to purchase the products wherever they feel most comfortable. That could be through the app, that could be through an online store, you know, relating to the brand, or it could be through a a 3rd third-party e-commerce marketplace like Amazon or Shopee. It could be an integration with an e-wallet provider or it could be in that good old physical store. But most of all, it changes the way that the brands communicate with their consumers.
1: Is that in terms of optimising each sales channel?
0: Ultimately, yeah. Uh, For you as the brand, you know, you're thinking about those overall numbers that you're selling rather than necessarily where they're sold. So yes, Mm. you want to make sure you optimise each one of your sales channels because each channel will be creating its own streams of data that help you to anticipate where the market is heading next. And of course, you want to make sure that all those channels support each other, but you're not necessarily locked to those channels, you know, you haven't committed to them for the long term. If consumer behavior moves in a different direction, then the brand will also change its focus accordingly.
1: Right. And that comes back to that central question how do you maintain that brand uniformity when the channels are so diverse? And in some instances, they may be controlled by third party marketplaces.
0: Well, with the platforms that a brand controls, it's As you mentioned, it's simpler, it's more straightforward. I'll get into that in a moment. With those third-party marketplaces, for larger brands, they'll work with you pretty closely to make sure the products offered or the products that are highlighted reflect the brand's current uh, priorities. But brands also have to be aware of the logistical limitations of the marketplaces that they're on. Things like how quickly products can be delivered uh, or how, they can, how quickly they can be dispatched, rather what the delivery time is going to be like, what that delivery experience is going to be like. So some brands may opt to keep that fulfillment part of the process in-house to, so they can control it and simply use the marketplace, you know, like a digital mall where you browse and buy.
1: Mm, So does that leave physical stores as something of an orphan child, part of a declining legacy model?
0: Well, if you handle the transition well, then those bricks and mortar stores become a reflection of all the sales channels. So already in a lot of instances, you can buy online, but the product is delivered for you to pick up in store. Increasingly, you can opt for options like curbside pickup, where you don't even have to park or get out of the car. So those physical stores are still important. As I said earlier, they're your brand. Showroom, And with their purpose shifting, you know, as I said, from uh, retail to trial, that also changes the way that you staff them. So rather than the bored retail assistant who asks if you want any help and when you say no, switches back to contemplating the futility of existence and chewing gum, You actually want product specialists. And that's one of the reasons I keep mentioning beauty products. You know, we talk about Apple, we talk about its geniuses, you know, its product evangelizing retail staff. Well, makeup counters have had geniuses, product evangelists for literally decades.
1: Right. The OG,
0: the original influencers. Yeah, exactly. And seeing your staff as influencers makes a lot of sense in this environment. You know, as brands and influencer behavior are becoming more entwined, we see a lot of brands moving away from sales-based advertising to this kind of tutorial-based messaging. So they might put out a Facebook Live or a TikTok tutorial that shows you how to use the product rather than pushing for that hard sale. So it's all about that loyalty. It's the retention. It's about building that relationship. And those sales staff are increasingly being promoted by brands as influencers. Now, sometimes that happens nationally, and sometimes it also happens at a local level as well. We're seeing more of these, you know, former retail staff building their own customer and client networks through social media, through messaging apps, they're reaching out and they're doing this kind of tutorial-based networking. And again, where those eventual sales take place, whether it's in-store, whether it's online, is less important than the fact that they do actually take place. So are we seeing more augmented
1: and virtual reality technologies being used across the retail sectors?
0: Yeah, I mean, I had to throw that in in case this is accused of not being a technology episode. Um, But this is also one of those areas where beauty and cars collide um Hmm. not the best phrase sentence i've ever come up with but you know there there are plenty of brands that have uh, augmented reality apps that help you try on the product in much the same way that you know you use a a filter on instagram uh then there are the creepier ones like amazon's cameras that Mm. kind of scan your body and let you try on clothes i'm not sure how comfortable most people are with that and there are also plenty of, you know, those 360 degree uh, augmented reality car type applications, you know, virtual showrooms that allow you to explore the interior and exterior of cars. And we also saw this explosion over the pandemic of people buying houses that they'd never seen yeah. because, again, they weren't allowed to travel. So virtual reality and augmented reality tools allowed people to tour prospective homes to buy. Um I mean, I've, I've got to admit that would scare me, making a purchase of that scale, buying a house that I'd never even visited. But, you know, there's a whole generation now that doesn't really have those same hangups about the differences between online and offline experiences. And that's really, I guess, what this show was about. It's about that generation of consumers who will be happy to take a car for a test drive in the metaverse and who will expect to have the same experience and performance from that vehicle when it eventually shows up at their door. All right. Matt
1: Armitage, Matt's planning away. And of course, you can find Matt on Instagram and Twitter at Culture Matt, and that's K-U-L-T-U-R-M-A-T-T. Or you can subscribe to Culture Pop newsletter on Substack for more information about these shores. And Matt will be back again next week. Matt's planning again.